journey in Mark uh, chapter 10 today. We're going to look at verses 46 through 52. Uh, I'm very humbled and honored to be able to, to bring the word to you today. Um, and I also know that it's not possible to rightly interpret the word of God without the Holy Spirit interpreting it um, for you. So uh, before we get into the word or any, um, any um, understanding of it, let's pray and, and ask God for that understanding. So, Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for um, the opportunity to look at your word, that we, that we live in a place where we can come and we can, we can freely do this without fear of persecution or um, anything like that. And I pray that you would make us grateful for that and help us to um, love to study your word. I pray that uh, today you would, you would give us your Holy Spirit to be able to rightly divide it, to understand it. Um, give me uh, words of truth to speak and uh, be with the hearts of the hearers and give them ears uh, to hear and, and hearts to see and understand. Um, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. All right. Uh, so in Mark chapter 10, we've been talking about Jesus being on a journey with his disciples. And uh, we've been calling this journey for a few weeks now uh, a road trip. When I hear uh, Colby use the example of a road trip, there's two things that come to mind for me. The first one is a road trip with your college buddies. Everybody think back a few years, some of us more years than others, and that's okay. Um, but think back to when you would go on a road trip with your friends and the destination is fun, it's a beach, maybe there's a little umbrella drink waiting for you at the end of that. And you're going on that trip to create some memories with friends. This is not that road trip. The second example that I think of uh, when, when we talk about a road trip is, and I would have never considered this a road trip until seven years ago, but I'm thinking now of the road trip someday that I'm going to take Abel on when I have some things to explain to him uh, and talk to him about. Um, and this mirrors that road trip a little bit more. Um, because Jesus, like Colby has said, is taking his boys on a journey with some teachable moments on it. Um, but even that road trip pales in comparison to the journey that Jesus is on here because the explicitly stated purpose of this road trip comes earlier in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, when Jesus says, he tells his disciples, this is where this road trip ends. 33, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is not a road trip to create some memories. This road trip, this journey has a very specific purpose for Jesus. And because of that, verse 32 says those who followed were afraid. Even though they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, they didn't have the eyes to see what he was talking about, they knew that this was heavy and they knew they were afraid. So in verse 1 of chapter 10, we see that Jesus is coming from the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, which is going to be a term that we hear later today. On a journey in verse 17, verse 32 says, up to Jerusalem. This journey 
is Jesus, the Lamb of God, walking straight up to the den of wolves and laying his life down as that lamb for your sin and for mine. Lee talked last week about how the Jews were expecting Jesus to be the lion that would free them from political tyranny, from oppression by the Romans, from the power of men. And James and John stated that they are willing and able to drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism. And Lee even gave the example of Peter in the garden when Jesus is being arrested, being willing to pull out his sword and fight for the kingdom they think that Jesus is about to set up. They're willing to lay down their lives for an earthly king. But Jesus wasn't here to be the lion, not yet. On this journey, he's the Lamb of God coming to take away the sin of the world. Not to free us from the power of man, but to free us from the power of sin, our sin. Um, We sing a song to the kids uh, every night before we go to bed and we rotate through who we let pick the song. And for whatever reason, Ethan has latched on to the song, My Rock and My Redeemer, that we sing here at church. And I love that song because the last verse says that he is the gracious savior of our ruined life. And I think a lot of times it's easy for us to think that our lives are ruined because of the Romans, because of the oppressors, because of Putin and what's going on in Russia, because of things external to us. And so I pause the song every time and I ask the kids, what is it that ruins your life? It's your sin, not those other things. And so this is what Jesus has come to free us from, the power of sin in your life, not the power of men over you. Someday he'll come and be that lion, but on this journey he is the lamb. His disciples were thinking of a kingdom of power that Jesus was going to set up, not a kingdom of service to others. And he's talked about that all through chapter 10. A kingdom that he later tells Pilate is not of this world. His kingdom is not a kingdom of lording power over others to push them down, but a kingdom of using your position and your power to serve others and build them up. Jesus is what Ephesians 2 says, the cornerstone upon which the whole building is built. And we're going to see an example of Jesus using his position in service to someone else today. In this chapter alone in Mark, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has said that the kingdom of God belongs to children, that many who are first will be last, and that even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be, or came not to be served, but to serve. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, lay down your life in service to others. Come take a week of vacation and spend it with us at Cross Bar X. (laughs) One of my favorite portrayals of historical characters, and I was told this morning how inaccurate this portrayal is, so it is just a portrayal of a historical character, uh, is Mel Gibson's rendition of William Wallace and Braveheart. Have you guys seen that movie? I hope so, because it's your one movie reference you're going to get today. Uh, The reason I like the character of William Wallace in that movie so much is because whether he knows it or not, he preaches both in word and action this aspect of the kingdom of God that Jesus has been talking about all through Mark chapter 10. 
the aspect of service, of using one's position to protect and serve those lower than you. There's a scene in Braveheart where Wallace has just defeated the English, and so the Scottish nobles knight him and make him the defender of Scotland. And as soon as they're done doing that, one of the nobles steps forward and says, this is the man from our clan who has the rightful claim to the throne of Scotland. Recognize him. And then all of the other nobles raise their voices in vehement arguing towards that claim, saying, no, our man has the rightful claim to the throne. And Wallace becomes disgusted, looks at his men, and they begin to walk out. And over the yelling and screaming, one of the nobles notices that Wallace is walking out, and he cries out after Wallace and says, Sir William, where do you go? And he turns around and he says, to invade England. And after they're done laughing at him, Wallace continues, and he says, there's a difference between us. You think that your position, you think that the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think that your position exists to provide those people with freedom. And I go to make sure that they have it. Jesus is on a journey better than that of Wallace. This journey that he's going on is to Jerusalem to suffer and bleed and die, to use his position of righteousness and authority to purchase with his own blood your freedom and mine. Not from political oppression, but from our sin. And he's coming to the last leg of that trip that we see here in verse 46, from Jericho up to Jerusalem, And it's on entering that last leg that we get the occasion for the story of Bartimaeus. Um, Tyrell, if you could bring up that first uh, slide. Let's read verses 46 and 47. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Um, So I don't know how well you guys can see this map, but the the red city is Jericho. Both Jericho and Jerusalem are south of that pink region at the top, um, which is Galilee. Uh, It's just to the west of the Sea of Galilee. And Galilee contains the town of Nazareth. Now the text says in verse 1 that Jesus is in the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, which again, uh, we'll we'll see later. Um, And in verse 32, that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. So, neither coming from Jericho, nor from the region beyond the Jordan on this map, screams to me, up to Jerusalem. Right? They have some directional challenges here. So this seems a little off. And this is not extremely critical for our text today other than that I want you to see that sometimes the Bible is going to have apparent contradictions within it and it takes when we come across those things further study and diving in deeper instead of saying I just don't understand it or worse saying the Bible has contradictions I'm not sure I believe it okay Um, 
But this seems a little off. And I think that this going up to Jerusalem actually is talking about the road between the two cities, Jericho and Jerusalem. So Tyrell, if you could bring up that next slide. So this is a, a, a side view of uh, Jericho and Jerusalem. And as you can see, um, Jericho is at the inlet of the Dead Sea. And it's about, it's more than a half a mile in elevation lower than the city of Jerusalem. And so when the text says that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, he's not talking about coming from the south. He's talking about coming from this city right here at the inlet of the Dead Sea. It's going up to Jerusalem. Um, just a little bit about Jericho. As you can see, uh, Jerusalem is a mountainous region, and so it's going to block Jericho from all of the weather coming in from the west coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And as such, it's going to be desert, rocky, you can think of like all the beauty that we see driving up to Denver and then they might as well start Kansas as soon as you step out of it, right? There's one good thing, one good thing that has ever come out of Kansas that I know of. So this is, this is what it's talking about, going up to Jerusalem from the city of Jericho. Um, the road from Jericho to Jerusalem is roughly 18 miles long with over half a mile in elevation gain. So we need, to, we need to look at things in the text that seem to contradict themselves and, and not explain them away, but understand them better. For example, Luke's account of this story says, as they drew near to Jericho. This one says, as he was leaving. Okay, What's that about? I can't honestly say that I know. There are some, there are some theories out there that could explain it. One of which is that Jesus actually had two encounters with this man. One when he was entering and one when he was leaving. And Luke doesn't separate the two because he wants to have it be one complete story instead of going in chronological order. Okay? Um, which to me makes sense. Um, it would also explain some of the things that happen later. Um, another one. Matthew's account says that there are two blind men. Not just one. Okay? That doesn't make this passage untrue, but it can seem like a contradiction. And so I want you to see that there are things in the Bible sometimes that are hard that we need to dive further into, all right? Um, and I would encourage you in your study uh, to do those things. House church leaders, take a look at both of those things and see if you can come up uh, with logical explanations and reasons for why those might be the case. Go ahead and go to that uh, third map, Tyrell. So this is the old road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, not only is the road uphill, it's also rocky. They're desert mountains. Um, and this road is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Does anyone know where it is? Good Samaritan. If you read the rest of Mark chapter 10, maybe let's call him the neighbor Samaritan. No, you're not that no one is good but God alone. You're right, this is, the, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. So not only do Jesus' followers have reason to be afraid because he told them how this road trip ends, they're not exactly on a fun road for the trip. They don't really understand what Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do, but they know he's going there to die. But they also have reason to be afraid 
Because this road they're on is a marauder's road. People get mugged, robbed, and left for dead here. Commonly enough that when Jesus in the Good Samaritan parable said, there was a man who was on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and everybody's ears knew what was coming next. This road, this is the last leg of the journey that Jesus walks with his disciples. I want you to consider the thoughts that Jesus is having as he climbs uphill for a dangerous, rocky 18 miles to Jerusalem and consider that the creator of the universe is walking this road knowingly for you and that he considers you worth the journey. Now, much of Jesus' ministry has been performed in Galilee to the north. Um, if you can go back to that first, first slide, Ty, I'm sorry. Uh, Galilee to the north, that, that pink region. So much of it that he is known as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, he's known by many names, but on hearing this name, Jesus of Nazareth, it's interesting that it causes a response in Bartimaeus to do what? He begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David. He hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth walking by, and the crying out that he does is not to Jesus of Nazareth, it's to Jesus, son of David. Why is that? You guys flip in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, if you would, please. So this term, son of David, has prophetic significance for Jesus. And somehow, I don't know how, if he knew this prophecy or if it's the Holy Spirit working inside of him, um, this term has prophetic significance. And this blind man understood something about these two names, hearing one and saying the other. So just to jog our memories a bit, uh, Colby has previously given a sermon on Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. And as far as sermons on genealogies go, it's fascinating. So I would encourage you to go back uh, and listen to that. Um, But just to refresh, if you look back, Matthew chapter 1 begins in verse 1 by saying that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This term, the son of David, is used to describe Jesus not only as a descendant of David, but as the king of that God promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I love uh, the music that you picked this morning, David, and that we did not uh, talk about it um, because we're singing about kings and worthy is the lamb, and it's just cool how God works. Um, This term is referring to the king that God promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises David that he will raise up his offspring, singular, and will establish him as king, and that this king will be from his body and will sit on the throne forever. This is who the term son of David refers to. Colby also noted in his teaching on Matthew chapter 1 that Hebrew letters correspond to numbers and numbers correspond to words and ideas. Now, I'm not going to make a case that you can decode the Bible with, with numbers and letters. Um, I think it's very helpful, and I think that God is such a big designer um, that he's able to weave all of these things into scripture but I think we need to start um, with just understanding basically what the text says but um, Colby did make the point in that sermon that um, those numbers in the uh, word David the name David Dalet Vav Dalet those are the fourth the sixth and the fourth letters of the Hebrew alphabet and they correspond to those numbers four six four 
adding up to 14. 14 is significant. So are other numbers in um, Hebrew. For example, 6 is the number of man. 7 is the number of completeness. Colby said that 12 is the number of administration. 8 is the number of new beginnings. 14 is the number of, do you guys remember what Colby said? The king. 14 is the number of the kings. Okay, And so not only does the son of David have uh, kingly implications from 2 Samuel chapter 7, it just has kingly implications from the Hebrew language in general. 4 plus 6 plus 4, the letters of David add up to 14, the number of the kings. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew goes to very specific detail that there are 14 generations between Abraham to David, David to the Babylonian exile, Babylonian exile to Christ. Matthew is leaving no doubt and very intentionally and specifically saying that Jesus, the son of David, is the promised king. So somehow, Bartimaeus hears Jesus of Nazareth and ascribes to Jesus this term. This is what he cries out. All right. If you can bring up that fourth map, Tyrell, and we're going to read Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 through 7. Uh, Let's start in verses 1 through 2. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Do you remember that? Beyond the Jordan? Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Um, I'm not sure if you guys can see it, but where is Zebulun and Naphtali on this map? I wish I had a pointer. Thank you. Galilee, okay? Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. Go back to that first map, Tyrell. What's in Galilee? Nazareth, okay? So, Bartimaeus hears this. He hears Jesus of Nazareth. He knows Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, Nazareth, And he's heard some things about Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. What are some things that this Bartimaeus might have heard about Jesus? In Mark, he's healed people. He's raised a dead girl to life. He's cast out demons. He's healed lepers. He's used his authority to teach, to preach the gospel of repentance. He's done so many things that word of them has gotten to Bartimaeus. One more thing in Mark. It's very likely because if anyone has shared with this blind beggar what Jesus has done in Nazareth, in Galilee... Something happened in Bethsaida. Do you guys remember Mark chapter 8? That was probably only like six months ago that we were there. Mark chapter 8, 
Jesus takes a man out of the village of Bethsaida, spits on his eyes, lays his hands on him twice, and restores his sight. Think Bartimaeus has heard that story? I think maybe so. That's a relevant story for Bartimaeus. And if anyone has heard that story and traveled down to Jericho, I think they've probably shared it with him. When Bartimaeus steps forward and says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I wonder if the thought in his head is Jesus. Spit on my eyes, please. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to get spat upon for you. And this blind man wants Jesus to spit on his eyes. His one conclusion from all that he's heard about how the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, about those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. His one conclusion is that this is the son of David. Why? Isaiah 9, 6-7, same passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Bartimaeus reaches the conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth must be the promised king. And so he begins to cry out, appropriately, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Um, This is not my story, it's Colby's, um, so I'm going to share it to the best of my ability. But if it's wrong, um, it has inaccuracies in it, um, it's because Colby told me wrong. Um, So Colby's been here. Colby's been to Jericho. Colby's been to Jerusalem. Um, I can't remember if he said it or not, but if he's been to both of those places, it's likely that he's walked that same road that Jesus walked up to Jerusalem. Um, And he shared with me that uh, he was in Jerusalem with a friend and they were walking and looking along at some sites and looking at a wall and they were walking and talking. And it just so happened, just so happens, that a man, a Jewish man, came and started to walk alongside them. And if you're walking alongside Colby, you're going to get to talk to Colby, okay? And so Colby began to talk to this man and to share the gospel with him and to share Jesus with him, to share what Jesus had done for him. And this Jewish man, who Colby said that it wasn't explicitly stated, but by the end of the conversation, he believed that he was not um, an Orthodox Jew, but a Messianic Jew, a believer in Messiah, Jesus as Messiah, said to him, if you're going to talk to me, a Jew, about Jesus... Don't call him Jesus. Call him the son of David. That's who I'm looking for. That's who we're looking for. I know some of us in here even have Jewish neighbors. Someone that you could witness to with the gospel. Use this as a tool to be able to talk to them about how Jesus has fulfilled prophecy specifically that they're looking for. Okay? This blind man, who by the way is most likely a Gentile, both Bartimaeus and his father's name, Tamias, have very heavy um, Gentile um, indications. This Gentile has eyes to see, though he is blind, the Jewish king that all of the people around him fail to see with eyes. 
and they rebuke him for it. Back to Mark chapter 10, verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus is so desperate for Jesus that his crying out causes the crowd that's following Jesus to rebuke him and tell him to be silent. This man is embarrassing himself in public. I know no one in here can relate to someone you know crying out in public and you rebuking them and them crying out all the more and embarrassing you or maybe just themselves, I don't know. And just like you have a hard time silencing your children when they cry out, the crowd can't silence Bartimaeus with their rebukes. He's heard of Jesus of Nazareth. He's come to his conclusion about who he is. He has heard what he can do. And he will not be silenced. The crowd rebukes him, tells him to be silent, and he cries out all the more, louder, shamelessly, I'll just pose this thought for you to ponder. At some point in your Christian walk, maybe sooner for some of us than others, if you cry out loudly enough or you share the gospel with enough conviction or if you walk boldly enough, someone is going to tell you to sit down and shut up. Someone will. Either well-meaning Christians who don't want you to embarrass yourself or be persecuted or the world who wants to kill the mention of Jesus as their king. Someone is going to do that. There may even come a day when they tell you to be silent or else. And at that point is a dividing line between those who are here and following Jesus because they have faith in him as the son of David, the son of God, to take away, forgive their sins, and put the Holy Spirit inside of them to walk in his ways. And those that are here, like the disciples in the previous passage, for whatever we ask of you. Or like the rich young ruler even earlier. Leave me my sin, but give me some good stuff that will enhance my life. There's a dividing point there between those who have faith in Jesus and those who are here for what Jesus can do for them. And in response to that rebuke that will come, some of us will obey the rebuke for fear of embarrassment or persecution and become silent. And others like Bartimaeus will boldly cry out all the more to their king, knowing he is the only one who has what they truly need. Not what they want and whatever they want, but what they need. I think it's an important scenario for us to consider, not only because of the state the world is in, but because Jesus promises us persecution. He says, if you follow me, this will happen. If this is how they treat the shepherd, imagine how they'll treat the sheep. 
I pray that we are a people who will be like Bartimaeus and be so desperate for the mercy of Jesus, the son of David, that no rebuke, no threat, no persecution would cause us to cease to cry out all the more to our king, the son of David. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Jesus has a history of listening to the cries of people who call out to him in faith. It doesn't mean he'll give you whatever you want, just like Lee said earlier. It doesn't mean that he'll give you whatever you want. It doesn't mean that you ask in faith for whatever you want and he gives it to you. But if your request is that your will would transform to match his, then that's a cry he stands ready to answer. I just said it's possible it's going to happen someday that someone tells us to be silent. Here in verse 49, I also want you to consider the other perspective, the other character that you could be in this story, the crowd. It's possible that at some point you will or already have be Christian who tells a brother or sister to be silent and rebuke them and not to cry out to God. For God knows what reason we would do that, but each of us do things we ought not to do. Maybe we don't want to see a brother or sister in persecution, and so we tell them to be quiet. I don't know. Maybe your job is on the line, and so you tell someone to be quiet. I think it's important for us to see from this that that's a sin we can repent of too. Mark doesn't say that there are two groups of people, a crowd that rebukes and a crowd that encourages. Maybe there are some people standing by who don't rebuke him, but they don't give him courage right away either. They don't tell the rebukers to be silent and then get him up and take him to Jesus. At the very least, they're silent. But then Jesus calls him, and that's exactly what they do. There's repentance there. They give courage. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you, and they take him to him. Luke's account of this says that when they saw it, the people there after Jesus does what he's about to do in Mark, all the people gave praise to God. The rebukers included. All the people gave praise to God. So if you are someone who has ever caused someone to sit down and be silent or to impede their progress towards the cross or in their pursuit of knowing Jesus more, repent. Take heart. Take them to the cross. Take them to Jesus. Give them courage. And throwing off his cloak, verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Does that sound familiar? Ring any bells? This is the same question that Jesus asked James and John in verse 36. 
Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? It's the exact same phrase. There's a lot of parallels and contrasts between this passage and the previous one, and we don't have time to get into all of them. But James and John came to Jesus in private, asking for whatever they wanted. Teacher. Teacher? They they just had the experience with the rich young ruler, who at least called him good teacher. And they can't even call him good teacher. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Blank check. How do we know they came in private? Well, when the other ten learned of it, they were indignant. This man comes crying out shamelessly in public, gets rebuked, cries out all the more, Jesus, son of David, not teacher, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus' response to each is the same. Verse 36, and here again in 51, what do you want me to do for you? Here's what I want us to think about. One, are our requests of Jesus for personal gain, for power, for authority, for comfort, for a lack of persecution, for what we want and whatever we want, whenever we want it? That's childish. Or is our request of Jesus for mercy childlike? Is our request for our will to conform to his? You could argue that both the request of James and John and the request of Bartimaeus are selfish requests. Give us what we want. Grant us to sit at your right and your left. Let me recover my sight. But one again has an intention of a grab for power. And the other is a request just simply for a basic need. A childlike request. And two, do we ask Jesus as teacher or as king? As the son of David? Does Jesus have the rightful claim to the throne of your heart? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus tells him two things. Go your way, your faith has made you well. What Jesus does not say is, Recover your sight, follow me. That's exactly what happens. Go your way, your faith has made you well, and immediately he recovers his sight and follows Jesus, even though that wasn't what he was told to do. This phrase, your faith has made you well, is the same phrase with which Jairus, earlier in Mark, implores Jesus to heal his daughter, and it's the same phrase in the same chapter that Jesus tells the woman with the the persistent bleed after he has cleansed her, your faith has made you well. It's the same phrase the same wording at the very least it implies a physical healing but as Colby has mentioned previously it can also mean and be interpreted your faith has saved you 
And I love this man's response to the command, go your way. Your way is my way, Jesus. If Jesus has saved you from your sin, the only appropriate response is to follow him on his way. Your way is gone. Your way is dead. Put it to death. Follow him. And he followed him on the way. The way to where? Where is Jesus going? Jerusalem. Go your way. I don't care where it is. Your way is my way. We don't follow Jesus on his way so that he will save us. We follow Jesus on his way because he has made us well. In the only sense that matters, he has saved us. I pray that we would have eyes to see him and follow him on his way. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for us. And uh, do you have a Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's good. I thank you that it's inerrant, uh, that it's without contradiction. Um, I thank you that it points us to your son, that these scriptures point us to your son. And I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see who Jesus is and that he would be the king and the Lord of our life and that we would be willing, no matter what anyone says, to follow him, to follow you on your way, Lord God. We love you, and uh, we thank you for who you are and how you've loved us um, in sending your son to the cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.